Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We are a family club. We believe in expressing our gratitude to everybody. And because we've been, well, I won't say, but in the past. Eddie, 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 I don't care who you are. You do not come on this show, which is listened to by fans of all ages, and swear not once, not twice, but three times. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Lockdown Interviews. This is Back of the Net, the AFC Bournemouth podcast. It's been the best part of a year now that we've been running these type of shows on the podcast and on YouTube. Can you believe it? It's been a long time, but we don't intend to stop. It's been a privilege to have bought some Cherry's names before your very ears. And today, well, it's no different. More details in the next few moments. But if you want to support what we do, then you can buy us a coffee to do that, just go to afcbpodcast.com forward slash coffee. Okay, let's get started. So being a Cherries fan, it's never dull, is it? And it certainly wasn't whilst this person was at the helm of the club. If you wanted a person who could help put the area on the map, this person was your man. Eddie Mitchell was AFC Bournemouth chairman for just over four years. He arrived with winding up petitions to deal with and he left the club by selling his stake to an owner that provided the financial muscle for the Cherries to become a Premier League team. In the following chat with Jeff Hayward and Neil Dawson, Mitchell talks about becoming chairman of Boscombe, the unexpected changing room visits, relationships with fellow members of staff, his sweary Radio 5 live rants, including confrontations on and off the pitch, some insight on Eddie Howe, the Southampton sagas, and what he would have made of the Premier League era. Eddie, how are you? 
Yeah, fine, thank you. Great. Welcome to the show. We're really pleased to have you on. What What have you been up to recently? Um, I've started a new business, um, developing uh, football training products. And we're just on the verge of opening a new centre. Excellent. Very good. Well, look, we're thrilled to have you on and, and talking to us on the show. For those that don't know too much about you, can you just tell us about your background and your association with, with the area, the Dorset and Bournemouth area? Yeah, I was uh, born in Boscombe Hospital, so I'm a local to where the football club was. Um, one of five boys. Um Lived in Boscombe for two years, moved to Parkstone, and lived in Paul for the rest of my life. Brilliant. And what, and what got you into football? Well, I've loved football all my life. I've followed Bournemouth all my life. I've supported Bournemouth all my life. Um, played football as best as I could until I sort of went another way. In other words, found girls. Um <laughs> And that's about it, really. Just love the sport. So your your first involvement with AFC Bournemouth in a professional capacity, it, it's probably worth talking to us about how that came about because the club was obviously in a in a in a bad state, wasn't it? How, how did people get in yeah. touch with you? How did it all kick off? Well, the club was um, came out of administration, and just before it came, just after it came out, um, I had a phone call from. Jeff Mostyn asked me if I'd joined the club and so I was interested in it. And <clears throat> I think at that time, um, I also had a phone call from Abdul Jaffa and a few other people. And it just sounded to me like it's just a lot of swapping. So I backed away from it. Um, and then about a year later, I was in Dubai and um, had another phone call from Jeff Mostyn talked to him in depth about it um, and agreed to meet, really. I went to the club. Um, I was supposed to go there to do due diligence, but I really wasn't interested in looking through things. I, I had made my mind up. I was interested and um, felt it would be a good challenge. I never in my life imagined that I would ever have the opportunity especially from a younger age when I was, you know, younger and supporting the club um, before I really got into business. So I never imagined I'd have the opportunity to get involved. Um, but at this time, uh, the, nobody else wanted the club. Um, I think the club was probably another three or four days away from going into administration, which would have taken them out of the Football League. Yeah. And... Um, with the backing of my family, I decided to pay the guy what he wanted for his shares. Um, and I did. And that was, um, I can't remember the name, the guy's name now, but he was from up country. Um, I think Boston sold him the shares. Um, I insisted on 51% or at least 50% on one, one share that I could have an option on to buy. Um, to give me the majority shareholding, and that was agreed, and the deal went through. Do you think it was a help or a hindrance being a fan of the club? Oh, it's a great help, really. I mean, 
I don't think I'd have done it if I wasn't. Um, I did come from Dorchester where um, I'd spent four years as chairman, but that was I went down there for a different reason, really. Um, I went down there to try and assist my son with his career, uh, which he wanted to be a footballer. So I got involved down there, but really I wouldn't have got involved with... The only other club that I would have got involved with was Full Town. When you buy a when you buy a business, <clears throat> no matter what due diligence you do, you still when you get hold of it, you still uncover a, a couple of drains and some things pop out. How how bad were those first sort of few months? Well, I did no due diligence really. Um, I've never really read a contract in my life. Um, right. I've always perhaps got somebody <laughs> yeah. to pass their eye over, it and, you know. But uh, if I get a feeling that I want something, I I tend to want to go for it. Um, but when I did actually get involved with board meetings and trying to find out how things were, um, it was a big eye-opener, big eye-opener. Yeah, there was things that coming out in Woodwork, which I didn't imagine. There was um, this very deep, bad feeling in the club, especially at boardroom level. Um, and lots of conflicting stories, I, you know. But I just knew what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, without wanting to make this sound like a job interview, what what did you think that you could bring to the table when you did join? A philosophy of hard work, not money. Um, and obviously the hard work will, you know, usually bring success and that's what it did. Mm. Um, I bought the shares, so I put money into the club that way. Um, and I was trading at probably 15 to 20 million pounds at that time or just before that time so I used a lot of contractors and people I knew um, so I went and stole a lot of money off them really telling them they had to contribute to signboards and tarmac and stuff like that and um, yeah and bullied them really um, because they they wanted to keep my uh, business going and you know I'd given them a lot over the years and it was sort of payback time and it was very noticeable one of the first things you did was really tidy up the exterior of the uh, of the ground which had been decrepit for for years was that a deliberate thing to make the club feel a little bit more professional about itself well when I went to the club for the first time in probably 10 years um, it was to watch the Poland versus England junior game. And I went over there. <coughs> um, I <coughs> was driving a Bentley at the time. And um, my son asked me if we, he, he wanted to go. So I said, yeah, I'll come with you. When we got there, we saw there's a sign up saying it's full. So I had to turn around in the old dusty car park. <coughs> And um, to go back out, and one of the attendants came over to me and said, cool, you haven't come over here to rescue the club, have you? And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, oh, we need some help. And I said, no, mate, no, I'll just come and watch the game, but I see you're full. And he said, I'll get you in, I'll get you in. So anyway, he toddled off and uh, came back about five minutes later <coughs> and took us into the disabled part, and we watched it from the disabled row in the front. It was a freezing cold night. Um 
and I saw the, you know, something that night just triggered something inside me. Um, and it gave me a lot of confidence. I don't know why, but it did. Um, but as regards to tarmac in the car park and tidying the front of the place up, no, that just came with my uh, natural ability to start to create good environments. I've been, I've built over a thousand houses, lots of them are sold for many millions of pounds. Um, <laughs> and to get that sort of money for a property, you've got to make it smart and yep. nice and desirable. Um, so I saw that as my task more than anything at the club. When I went over, I, it's something that I really, really do enjoy. Uh, my first job at the club was on um, a Saturday morning. I got there at probably half past six in the morning. Um, I travelled back from London quite often and driven by the sign, which said uh, at the time it was a yellow sign, said Bournemouth Football Club on it but it was absolutely black so my first job was to pull over at the side of the road with some cleaning gear which I bought from home much to my wife's disgust and at half past six in the morning I cleaned the sign <laughs> and it, underneath the black it was yellow and it really did I thought great that's what I'm doing you know just subconsciously I'm going to clean the place up and I'm going to make yeah. it like one of my houses you know where people wanted to go I mean sometimes I'd open a show house people would be queuing half a mile down the road to have a look around it because it was something special. Yeah. And I think by doing what I did, by um, improving the front tarmac in landscaping, which was already obligated to be done to the council, um, it gave a different feel to the place. And <laughs> I could feel that the improvements shock, well, not shock people, but were quite surprised that it was going in that direction and um, <clears throat> I was forcing it in that direction there must have been a, I was going to say there must have been a lot of goodwill to build on at that time because that was the minus 17 season we just survived being chucked out of the league you know there must yeah, have been I mean, a, a momentum to build on with Eddie in charge as well uh, um, there was a momentum on the pitch to build on which was nothing to do with the club as regards to the off-field activities. The off-field activities, there wasn't a lot to build on. Um, I know the supports were pleased that they managed to, to stay up in the Football League. Um, but one of the things which played into my hands was the fact that the club was embargoed, which means I couldn't buy any players if I wanted to. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> And it locked the players that they had there into each other. And the camaraderie when I went there was absolutely fantastic. The boys just worked together so well. And Eddie and Jason had, you know, pulled off that miracle. And so had the boys that were there. And um, so I didn't have to worry about on the field, um, which was great. It let me see what I could do off the field. You know, fending away the bailiffs and begging the landlord and things like that. The tax man, I got to yeah. know him personally. Um, <laughs> so I spoke to him so much um, to keep him at bay. Uh, and it was a great challenge. But to do something like that, you've got to uh, put your heart and soul into it. And people 
perhaps perceived that I was arrogant and um, not the right person to run, run the club, but they had seen somebody that perhaps wasn't arrogant um, run the club for the last, I don't know how many years, Jeff Boston was there before I got there, but his heart, I don't know. I mean, with the first the first thing I did when I actually got to the club after cleaning the sign, um, I made sure I had all the keys and I went in every room, in every kiosk, in every cubicle of the toilets, ladies and men's, in every part of the stand, just to see what it was like, just to feel the club. Um, and I can ne- never forget coming out of the north stand um, and looking back at the west stand hospitality stand and I had to pinch myself to to make it real because it felt you know how the hell am I in charge of all these seats that people are going to sit in and Mm. you know I just felt overwhelmed um, because I'd never in my life really imagined it and actually joining the club although I was asked the year before to join it um, from when I was asked the second time, it was quite a short period. And I'd, only, I'd only met Eddie and Jason once, and I'd met the board a couple of times um, within the space of a couple of weeks. And after that, I ended up owning the club or being the, um, custod- you know, looking after the club for the supporters, should I say. I didn't own it. I never wanted to own it. I don't think anybody does ever own a club. Um but it was really um, a great time. And when I walked out onto the pitch, I did. I feel over, overwhelmed. And I made a habit of um, doing a ritual every um, home game. I'd get there at probably, I don't know, six o'clock in the morning with my dog, who was called Birdie. Um, and we would go to the centre circle. And we pretend to have the ball and run to each goal and put a couple of goals in each end. So that I thought, well, we win 4 0 today. Um, nobody ever knew I did that, but I really <laughs> enjoyed it. And it was just part of how you feel if you um, have the opportunity to be in the position I was in. I suppose yeah. I no, every, every fan's dream. Well, it works, certainly. Whatever you did in those pre match rituals worked that year. Could you? Could you see the potential in Eddie and Jason? Because um, obviously, when you got when you got involved with them early doors, they would would still have been in the in you know in league uh, in League Two. Could you see the potential for them and what they could achieve? Well, I could see the potential in the the work ethic. Whereas, not so much with Jason, but I'm a person that likes to be first to work and last to leave, so that I can set the standard and set the the work ethic and it used to piss me off quite often that I would pull into the car park very early in the morning and Eddie's car was there and it used to piss me off big time because he had got there before me <laughs> so I realised his work ethic um, I think I mean my very first meeting with Eddie after the one that we had before I actually bought the shares in the club we had a stand up argument and ended up chat and swear at each other and turned each other to piss off you know it was um, and I could see uh, that he was very much a similar character to myself 
he felt passionate about what he was doing and wanted to succeed and wasn't frightened to challenge anybody um, to make it succeed. So I could see it in Eddie. I didn't see it in Jason. Um, I got to know Jason over the years and he's a likeable chap. I never really got very um, close to Jason. Well, not already really, but I, I could see things in Eddie that reflected myself. Was promotion ever really a serious thought at the start of that season when you did take over? No, not to me. I didn't even think about what position we would end up in at the end of the league. I never feared that we would go down. Um, obviously, I went to every game um, and I loved watching every game and I shout and swear and kick things if we, you know, let goals in easily and things like that. But... Um, never gave the end position of the league any thought um, because I was too busy fending off things outside of the game, really. Hmm. And was was Eddie, in, the, in his first stint at the club, obviously, because um, we'll talk about his second stint later, but in his first stint, money was tight. Um, was he... Did he appreciate that or did he come knocking on the door? Was he one of those managers that always wanted more cash or was he respectful of the club's position? How, how did it work with your relationship well, with him? That's, like what, that? that's what I said. It was great for me because he couldn't knock on the door for cash. Right. <laughs> um, he wanted, I think, for me to clear the debt, <clears throat> which would have given us more um, movability with getting rid of the embargo. Um but I certainly wasn't going to go in and clear £2 million worth of debt at the time, which is yeah. approximately what the club owed. Um, so he really couldn't do that. I explained that to him in the very first meeting, and that was when we had the stand-up argument. I told him that I hadn't come in to pour my life savings into the club. I'd come in to set a proper work ethic and... Um, pass that on to everybody that came into the club and in the end we you know kissed and made up and it was fine it was fine how difficult was it in that first season though because we did face hmrc big bills you know we were close to to going out of business again how tough was it brett pitman saved the club by his move to bristol um which came at a very important time uh, it gave us, or gave me, still the money to carry on the momentum of improving the facilities, making it more attractive for players coming down. I mean, when I got there, everybody was using an ice bath. Um, it wasn't an ice bath, it was a wheelie bin full of ice and water. Um, the dressing rooms were absolutely appalling, the mould on the walls, and I don't know, it was just crap. Um and, you know, we set about improving those things to make it more attractive. So one of the jobs we did is went right through the dressing room and fitted it out, got a proper ice bath. Um, these things were noticeable when players came and looked around. This is after the embargo was lifted, by the way. Yeah. Um, but the work was done during the embargo um, because I had no money to... You know, I couldn't spend money on players. Yeah. Or Eddie couldn't. So, you know, I 
spent money on the club. And did Eddie accept that? Because obviously Brett Pittman was the leading light and top goal scorer. Was that a difficult decision or was it just one that was accepted because Brett wanted a decent future? I think it was not to stand in Brett's way, really. That was the attitude and I think that's how Eddie saw it at the time. Yeah. Um, we never really sat down and discussed <coughs> football in the first stunt that Eddie was there um, before he went to Burnley. Um, I just would let him get on with it and as I say, I was so busy uh, doing my thing. One of the times it sticks in my mind where I engaged with Eddie and Jason before they left to go to Burnley because <coughs> we had a Notts uh, County game down at the club and it was being televised and we were getting, I think it was 20 grand for the, te you know, for the tele television, you know, to be on telly. And uh, it pissed down a rain all day. And about 12 o'clock, <coughs> it was talk of it being called off. So I had a workforce of about, at the time, I suppose, 10 guys over at the club. Um, so we all went and got brooms, um, mops and whatever we could. Um, one guy went up to Southampton and borrowed a load of uh, sponge rollers. And... Um, at about five o'clock, after we'd been out on the pitch, getting trying to get rid of this water for, I don't know, three or four hours, we were all drowned. Eddie and Jason decided to come out to have a look at the pitch. Um, so I quickly shoved the broom in Jason's hand and a roller in uh, Eddie's hand, and they joined in for an hour trying to get the water off the pitch, which was quite comical, because <coughs> they weren't manual workers, so to speak. But it was a good uh, good experience, and I think they could see how determined we were, not just me, but my workforce that were there. Um, and it's something that just stuck in my mind as a quite an interesting afternoon. Yeah. Um, and then after about six o'clock, the ref came out and rolled the ball, and it stopped in a puddle, and that was the end of that. We didn't get the game on. But we tried. Um, we tried real hard. And, and what was it like in that season after we got promotion? Because Eddie suddenly became in demand. You were you were beginning to fend off offers from all and sundry, weren't you? Yeah, I, um, I think after it digested, you know, at the end of the season we'd been promoted. I thought Eddie was destined for better things or bigger things, should I say, not better. Um, and the first the first approach we had was from Southampton, from a guy called Katesi. Um His secretary asked and uh, phoned me and asked if Katesi could speak to me. <clears throat> I took his call and he asked if he could um, approach Eddie. And I, I don't believe in holding people back if they want to go forward. Um, so I... Um, I let them approach him. He went there for an interview. When he came back, I asked him how he got on, and he told me he was offered a job. I somehow made that public. I can't remember how it came out. Anyway, I got a phone call from Katesi <coughs> a little while later <coughs> saying that um, I owed him an apology because he never offered Eddie the job. Well, obviously, I believed the guy that was working with me, Eddie, not him. So I didn't apologise. 
and consequently um, we were playing Southampton a few months later I think it was and I got um, a notification saying that I wouldn't be allowed in the boardroom at Southampton because I still owed Katezi an apology so I said fair enough <coughs> can I book a box so they said yeah fine so I booked a box um, I'd had a few to drink a few glasses of champagne before the game and I decided to go to the boardroom and confront Katezi and say hello to him which is what I did much to his surprise and much to the surprise of the other members in the boardroom of AFCB um, you know Jeff Moston and his crew um, he saw me stood at the door chatting to Katezi anyway I went back to the box and um, we watched the game and I was with um, my friend the Russian guy and his family my family and um, it didn't really twig at the start but they had put us in the box right in the middle of the Southampton supporters and um, <clears throat> we start. somebody had realised who we were and we started to get quite a lot of abuse thrown at us so in my wisdom I wanted to defend the club um, so I told them we were three places above them in the league <laughs> and it was sort of, I had guys trying to scramble over the railing to get into the box so we had to get security or the security came quickly and um, stayed with us for the rest of that half <clears throat> and then at half time they moved us up to the end of the stadium where our supporters were in the box new box yeah. so we uh, just one of those occasions where my um, enthusiasm got us into trouble. Well, so yeah, we'll, we'll talk about some of the others in a bit, I think. But the um, I remember I remember that because I remember we were singing your name, weren't we? By the time you arrived in the in the second half, we could sing. Yeah, we were close to right. up, and, uh, and so I, I remember that really clearly. I think was the next approach ready. Was that Crystal Palace came in next? Because obviously there was the whole where you know the. It, Eddie leaving is really fascinating topic to talk about because there was the whole where yeah. we thought he was staying and then he was leaving. So was it Palace up after Southampton? No, no, it was Southampton. And from memory, it was only Burnley after that. Oh, was it? Um, from, this is from memory and my memory isn't that good. But um, yeah, Burnley had made an approach. Um, <coughs> I spoke with Eddie at great lengths and tried to keep him. Um, but it wasn't to be, and I knew that we needed the money anyway. We were going to get a decent fee for it. So, um, I, you know, I said I wouldn't stand in the way, Eddie, and he negotiated with Burnley. Um, he came out and spoke publicly saying it wasn't going to go. Yeah. And then I think he had a change of heart. And off he went. Why did what? Because that was a really weird period. Because there was quite a clear "I'm staying," and then 48 hours later, there was quite a clear "I'm going." Do, do you think that was just his change of art, or was there anything else happened in between? No, nothing happened between. It's just it, I think he might have slept on it and realised the opportunity was quite big. He was joining a Championship club, and at the time, it wasn't foreseen that Bournemouth would end up in the Championship. So. 
maybe he spoke to Jason and they decided between them. I don't know, but he, um, I mean, it was only a day between and there's nothing really happened in that day. Hmm. Had you been thinking about who was going to replace Eddie for a long time or, or was it no. just a quick decision? After Eddie had gone, I mean, I think Marvin Bartley went and a few others. Um, along with Eddie, a couple of the coaching staff went. Um, but I did speak to Eddie and I asked his advice on if there was anybody at the club that may suit the position. I already had in mind, you know, obviously somebody coming to the end of their career. Um, and I had it in mind that perhaps Lee Bradbury would fit the job. Um, I asked Eddie what his thoughts were, and he said, well, we'd have to change his whole approach to life because it obviously it was a hard work. Um, but, yeah, he, he could do it if he, if he did. Um, so I thought, well, I had to win some for the supporters over if I was going to take Lee Bradbury as manager or offer him the job. So I thought, you know, the assistant manager, Fletcher, was coming to the end of his career. Uh, all the supporters loved him. So I thought, well, that would be a softening blow for the supporters because it'd be hard for them to slag him off um, mm. or go against him, should I say, really. So, and I thought they would make it a reasonable team. So I asked to meet them over at the stadium. Um, and I had a chat with them. I think Fletch was a little bit disappointed because when I asked him if he could meet me over at the stadium with Lee, I think perhaps he thought he might be the manager and Lee might be the assistant. But when I offered Lee the job and Fletch the assistant, I thought he looked a bit disappointed. Mm. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, I don't know. But um, they both accepted the job. And... Uh, Truth be known, Lee brought in some really good signings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, players that actually played from then till the Premiership yeah. and in the Premiership. And I think one of them's still there now, mm-hmm. um, Cookie. So, you know, and he worked hard and did his best. Um, but the crowd didn't really give him enough time. Um but I'd, I'd like to try, my, my philosophy has been all through my working life to promote within, you know, rather than bring in and put on top of somebody. Um, and that's what I try to do. And that's what I tried to do that occasion. But it, it worked. We got to the playoffs. Um, and I think if Lee would have been uh, a little bit tougher, I think we might have won that playoff game. I think it was at Peterborough. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Huddersfield was the... Sorry, yeah, that's right. Um, I watched it from behind the goal. Really enjoyed it. thought it was one of the best games I've been to. Um, and sadly, we lost on penalties. But when I say if Bradley was a bit stronger, I think from what I heard at the start of the game, um, the Huddersfield asked the ref if there was if it went to penalties, it would have to be taken up there because it wouldn't 
the security wouldn't be offered down the other end of the pitch. Um, it wouldn't be safe with our supporters down there. Um, so consequently, there was no toss for the coin for which end the penalties were taken. They were taken down the house for them. And uh, I didn't find this out till after. At least this is what I was told after, whether it's true or not. I don't know for sure, but um, I was disappointed. I, I felt Leash, if it was the case, should have said, no, we ain't playing unless we toss a coin for it, which is really fair. Um, but I think overall, Lee done really well for the club. I like the game. Yeah, it, 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 it did. So just, just, I just want to drop back just one minute. So what... What was it that Bradbury had that Fletcher didn't have in your head when you were looking at those two experienced pros at the end? I think a more serious side to him. He was from a military background, I think. He'd been in the army. Um, I felt Fletcher was more of the people's man. You know, he would very much a double act that very often works in football, I think. One's, one's mm-hmm. the hard man and one's the guy that the players can put their arm around or, you know, get close to. And mm. I felt that's how I saw Lee and Fletcher. Yeah. Good. Fair enough. So, so whilst Eddie was gone, a lot happened, um, including the arrival of a certain Max Denim. What's the connection between you and Max and what were the chain of events that, that led to him becoming involved? Um, well, I... Had a well, I was buying a plot of land down at Sandbanks for four and a half million, I think it was, or five million. And um, I was on the verge of exchanging contracts on it. And somebody said, Oh, a Russian wants you know, has been and looked at it and he wants to buy it. Um, so I agreed to step to one side if we could have the building contract, um, the plot. It's in itself had a lot of history for me. I used to go because it was backed onto the water. I used to go fishing there as a kid before any house was built on it, and um, had some magical times there. So I was somehow attached to this plot. Um, but anyway, I let him build it. We negotiated a build contract, and I built the house for him. And um, whilst I was building the house, uh, I got to know him and his wife, and. Um, we ended up having a holiday in Finland with them um, and had some great times with them. So I he used to invite him to the football. He'd come and watch and I'd explain, I told him my dreams of the club, you know, building training pitches over the other side and doing this and doing that. And I think he could see the passion that I had and the determination to turn it in to a good club um, and we used to talk about perhaps him getting involved in it and I knew perhaps Jeff Mostyn wanted to sell his shares or was interested in selling his shares so one day he said do you think I should get involved with the club oh in fact before then um we had a tax bill of £400,000, which we were going to get wound up on. And although I had the money, I didn't actually have the cash available or have it in assets. Um, 
So I asked him if he could loan us 400 grand against some of the assets I had. Um, and he said, yeah, no problem. So we paid a tax bill. So he was then involved with the club to a degree. Um, and he became interested and more interested. And then he one day he asked me if he should invest in the club. Um, could I ask if um, Jeff would sell his 50% shares? And we were very close at the time. Um, I never was close to Jeff. Um, didn't enjoy working with him, to be honest. Um, found him, him an embarrassment at times. Um, so it was pleasing for me to get Max involved. And uh, Jeff said, yeah, I'd sell my shares. And that's what happened. So that was so that Jeff sold his shares, but Jeff still there must have been a deal done because Jeff still stayed involved with the club, didn't he? So did he stay on as a like a non-shareholder, or how did it work? He was a non-shareholder. He, um, I didn't remove any of his privileges. Um, so he visited the boardrooms. He, um, I was not one for going in the boardroom, to be honest. Um, you know, when we used to go to the away games, I would usually go in the boardroom and say hello, have a drink and watch the boys warm up and just go yeah. in there at half-time for a cup of tea. Um, and then after the game, come back. Whereas, you know, Jeff would go in there before the game, have his meal and tell his jokes and whatever he did, which was quite embarrassing at times. Um and he enjoyed that and I could see that. So he became just, um, what would I say? He had no real position at the club, but I, I would, I allowed him to come to the games as part of the club. Yeah. Um, and he hosted the boardroom at home because I didn't particularly want to. What, what do you think Jeff Mostyn would make of you, Eddie? What do you think he says about you? Or do you not well, care? Of, no, not really. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly don't like me, I know that. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So after that Huddersfield playoff, I mean, we had a, a, a tougher season after that. We we kind of ended up mid-table. It was a more difficult season. There was a, a, a lot of players moved on. I mean, how how difficult was that? And do you think that was... The cause it of it. Yeah, it's one of the most difficult times for me at the club. Um, as Max um, helped me with the development of the club, for the you know contributed towards the, uh, the car park, the other car park. Sorry, um, or the lorry park, should I say? Um, it contributed towards some of the um, training pitch money that was needed. Um, so he became more and more involved with the club and we would spend long time, a lot, lot of time um, chatting about the club. Um, but I, 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 I've never had a crossword with the guy. Um, yeah. And I got on really well with him and he contributed towards improving the club. Yeah. I directed his money in the in the directions of 
um, where I felt it was best to improve and to get the club bubbling. And um, But that season was very difficult because it wasn't successful on the field and Max was desperate. He wasn't really interested in the infrastructure of the club. He was more interested in the results on the pitch, where I was... Yeah. Although I wanted the results on the pitch to go away, I was devastated when they didn't. <coughs> I wasn't because we was. I mean, yeah. that was that was the stage where we started to actually, for the first time ever, put proper money into the playing side of the, yeah. of the pitch. So we, it was almost like every time we played someone and someone had a good game against us, like Charlie Daniels or whatever, we'd buy them the, the next week because that was that was where we had Max's money, but the results didn't happen. And then you, you obviously came to the point where you thought it was going to work, wasn't going to work out with Lee Bradbury. Was that, was that all your decision? How hard was that? And how did that? No, I mean, first of all, it wasn't, <coughs> it wasn't all Max's money because the club was starting to make money, yeah. make money. It was, um, people were starting to invest in the club more. Um, we had raised ourselves quite a lot of money. Um, through the contractors that I had, you know, that worked with me. Um, and I had a guy that was, um, that worked very close to me for many years, Dave Roberts, who I think became a, a non-executive director for a few months. <coughs> he helped, he raised quite a lot of money. So it wasn't all Max's money. It was some of Max's support was there, but not, not mm -hmm. all of it. Um, but he was interested in the playing side and when he started to not get the results he wanted um, he asked me if it was about time for a change and I didn't really agree with him because I wanted to give Max uh, give Lee more time but I could see that he was anxious to, to make a change so I introduced him to Sean Brooks and Paul Groves, who were both very dedicated footballing people, um, very knowledgeable with the game, and a little bit um, different to Lee and Fletch, whereas uh, they were very strict and very had religious beliefs in what the players should and shouldn't do. Um, and after meeting with them and chatting with them, um, it was decided that we would ask Lee to step down um, and Fletch to stay at the club in another role. Um, we did ask Lee to stay at the club and work with Sean Brooks and Paul. Um, he totally refused um, and was disappointed that the decision was made to let him go. Um, and Sean and Paul were appointed manager and assistant manager. Towards the end of Lee's tenure, there was a, a much publicised story, you know what I'm going to say, don't you, about a, a certain changing room visit at half-time. I think it was the MK Dons game, I think. Okay, what, yeah, yeah. yeah what, what, what was that whole much-publicised team talk all about? Well, it was his wife. She was in the box watching the game with me and many other people um, and as often I would go down to the tunnel and meet the guys coming in and just pat them on the back if we were losing or probably if we were winning I wouldn't go down there 
And I said to Max, oh, I'm going down to see the boys come in. And she heard me and said, well, can I come? I said, yeah, of course. <laughs> so down she came to the tunnel. The tunnel, the, I, you know where the tunnel is and you know where the changing room is, I presume. Um, so we were at the tunnel, the boys came in. She wished them, you know, well, like me. And we were going back up the stairs and all she did was, she didn't even poke her head in the room because obviously we met, you know, 15, 20 men in there or whatever. She just poked her head around the corner of the door and said the best <clears throat> in the best sort of English she could because she wasn't fluent in English and came back upstairs into the box. Um, but I think somebody made a comment to Neil Perrett He's my best friend, and um, he decided to make saying of it and phone whoever you could up to make a story out of it. Yeah. But there's, there's nothing in it whatsoever, nothing at all, and it it really did piss me off. But there you go. It was one, it was one of those non-stories that became yeah. a story. Yeah, yeah very much so. What is your experience, Eddie, of dealing with the media? Bloody awful. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, my time at the club, um, as I say, it was a very determined, passionate time. Um, and I would speak my mind. Neil Perrett would pester me day and night to get stories. And he knew if he prodded me enough, I would bite, I suppose. Um <laughs> You know, you phone me up and say, oh, your supporters have been bashing the pub up up the road. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, three guys with poor with football shirts on. I said, well, how do you know they're fucking supporters? I mean, you know. <laughs> but anyway, he went and put it in the paper. Um, and it, they were very... I've had followed the club more so from the back page of the Echo than anything else. And I realised when I got to the club that the Echo were interested only in stories. It didn't matter whether it rubbished the club or whatever. <coughs> they needed the club to be interesting and sell papers. And they got those stories. I think it's completely different now where the, the Echo need the club rather than mm. the club need the Echo. Um, and not that no bad stories come out of it. It's all well, good stories. And all uh, Neil, Neil Perrett's working for the club, isn't he? He's working for them now. Yeah. Because one, one of the other um, quotes that people always remember about you was when you said if people don't like it, they can always go and support Southampton, didn't they? Do you, was, that, uh, was that something you regret saying, or did you say it as humour and it got misrepresented? Or No, I said it and I meant it. Um, I didn't regret one second at the club. So whatever I did at that club... I enjoyed every minute of it. I said it because I'm passionate and uh, when somebody stands up and says you stripped all the assets out of the club and sold them, you know, the fucking assets were stripped out of the club long before I got there. Mm. They'd sold the ground, they'd sold just about everything and begged in buckets, you know, and uh, yeah. I just wasn't having it. I mean, I hadn't put anything in my own pocket. I used to pay for my own breakfast in the club. I used to even if I had a cup of tea, I'd pay for it. I made everybody else do the same because the club isn't there to give people 
a good time, which, you know, the, the directors before I got there were in it for a good time and to swan yeah. around doing nothing but telling everybody who they are, you mm. know. And when somebody turned around to me in the fans' forum and said that I had ripped all the assets out of the club, and I thought, well, fuck you, if you don't like me, piss off. Yeah. Uh, I, I never took a penny out of that club, not to. And, and you brought John Yems to the club as well as uh, into the football yeah. operations side of things. I mean, that was quite a visionary thing to do as well. What, what, how did that come about? It came about, well, um, I was approached by Eddie's agent um, after he'd been, been at Burnley, and I think when Sean and Paul were not getting good results, and it was pretty obvious that if things didn't change, um, there could be a change in management again. And I, I, he's asked if we would be interested in Eddie coming back. And I said, yeah, of course we would, if, if the time it was right. And then he came up with, he said, well, if we do, you know, we need X amount. And it was a huge amount of money per week. And I said, no chance, mate, you know, forget it. Anyway, sometime after that, Johnny Ems, who I'd known, um, through wanting to buy players and he introduced a manager, a possible manager to me. I got to know him, um, which is not difficult because he likes to chat. And, um, and he's, we were talking and at the time we were looking, we were solidly looking for a new manager. Um, Jeff Mostyn wanted um, Steve Cottrell to come in um, which I actually went and interviewed at the Haven Hotel. He was, he wasn't for me, for sure. Um, but Yemsy phoned me up and um, said, how about Eddie and Jason coming back? I said, no, they're too dear. He said, no, I can get them back. I can get them back. Um, I can negotiate with Burnley and negotiate their wages and what have you. Um, we come as a threesome. You know, I'll come and join the club and I'll bring them back for you. So we negotiated, negotiated over the period of time, three or four weeks. Um, it was hard negotiations. Max obviously had a limit to what he wanted to actually pay Burnley for, for their services. He didn't know them. I obviously knew them and knew that they would be um, a good choice for the club. Other people were phoning up, like Robbie Fowler phoned up and Ben Hoddle's agent came to see us and <clears throat> a few others. Um, but none of them struck me as being the right people. Um, I'm not saying that Glenn didn't, you know, but it just didn't feel right at the time. Mm. Um, so, um, Yemsy kept, was very persistent. And we talked, and we talked with Burnley, and we talked with Eddie and Jason, um, or Yemsy did. I didn't actually speak to our, any of them. He, he carried out negotiations on my behalf. And I suppose we agreed terms three or four times, <coughs> only to have Jason change the terms for his own personal benefits. And Yemsy would phone me up and say, oh, sorry, we've got to pay Jason this because he's outlaid this and done this. And anyway, at times I told him to piss off and forget it. 
um, but they didn't. Uh, Yemsi probably didn't transfer that to them. Um, and he negotiated their terms, which we finally agreed, and they came on board. And I had advice also from my son, um, who had worked with Eddie, or trained with the squad under Eddie and Jason. Um, and he said, you know, that's the best bet, Dad, get them back. Um, my dog gave me some advice because I used to walk him every afternoon along the West Cliff and um, it seemed every afternoon Johnny Ems had phoned me with a different deal. So I beat the dog up. Um, <laughs> so he, he took a bit of hammering. But, but uh, yeah, they came back. Brilliant. Well, I mean, I guess it was, uh, it, I mean, for fans, we were, we, obviously we were living through the will they won't they will they won't they because there was so much speculation so it's really interesting to hear hear the, your side of it from from how it happened and did did they fit straight back in like a glove was it like they'd never been away yeah well the fans welcomed him back with open arms and I did as well I mean yeah they were, they're good at their job aren't they they proved that um and I think it was obvious for everybody to see at the time that, you know, they were going places. So, yeah, no, it was, um, it was good to get them back. What's your view on their, in terms of what, what each of them does? So what was, Jay, what was Jason's role? Well, I think Eddie was a hard man. And like I say, it's usually a twosome, whereas, yeah. you know, one's the straight guy and one's the comedy comedy hack so to speak and that's how I saw them really and in Eddie's first season I mean we we climbed from the bottom of League One and ended up getting promoted I think fans were chanting there's only one Eddie Mitchell how did, how did that feel I think the week before I bought them back they would chant other things about me <laughs> when I bought them back their views changed I said I had a few ups and downs with Eddie. Um, there was times a time when he handed his notes in, but I didn't accept it. Um, but generally, we we worked good together. So, um, what would you say would be your legacy? What would, what's the thing you're most proud about having when you decided to leave the club? Was it about the infrastructure, the changes you'd made there, and bringing Eddie back? I mean, what were the big things? You think? Um, well, nothing really. I just enjoyed every day I was there. I, you know, I haven't really left the legacy. Um, you know, if you look up the records of who's won this and who's won that, I, you know, you wouldn't find anything to do with me in there. I just went in there and did a job. And when it, I felt it had gone as far as I could take it, I was slowly losing control of the decision-making at the club. Um, I could see that my, you know, I'd built the North Stand um, and that was largely out of the club's money. Um, it just struck me as I either then 
took an interest in the football more. You know, I don't mean interest in the football, but in the team and who comes in and who doesn't come in and things like that, which Max was very much involved with. Or I carried on doing what I was doing. Um, but there was not a lot left to do because I'd done most of it. So, you know, people tend to go with the person who's got the purse strings and it was obvious that Max had the purse strings to most people at the club. So I felt the loyalty to me was diminishing um, and growing for Max. Um, so I thought, you know, now's the time to get out, really. We were sixth in the championship when I left. Um, it was always my ambition to... Um, be at the club when we equaled or beat Harry Redknapp's record of six in the championship. So I just felt it was right, right time to go. Do you regret? Do you regret not having had the Premier League years? Uh, no, I don't think so at all. I don't think I'd be here now talking to you guys if I stayed. Um, I'm a great believer in fate and, you know, I don't think I'd have had uh, a doctor stood behind me when I collapsed and I still would have collapsed at probably that time. I was fortunate that somebody kept me alive for four or five minutes um, and I think if I'd have stayed at the club, I'd have carried on drinking more than I should do. So, no, I'm pleased I went at the time. I'm disappointed the fact that the work, the next level of work that needed doing, really, from being in a premiership and probably pocketing half a billion pounds, is the fact that the supporters haven't got a ground. Um, and they haven't. The training ground's important, but it's not as important as, as securing, um, securing the ground. And I know unless the landlords changed it since I left, but I'm sure they haven't, that the landlords would negotiate a price. But it's just, um, it's just not been priority for them. But then there's nobody local on the board. So you don't um, think we'll get, you don't think we'll get a, we'll get a stadium or, or ever came close? Well, if I was at the club through the last five years, you'd have a new stadium. You'd have a new stadium and you'd own it. And it'd be where Dean Court is now. That was my next port of call, really. Uh, but we weren't in the premiership. We didn't have the funding to put to one side. So I, I knew we couldn't, well, unless we got in the premiership, I, we, I wouldn't have that opportunity to do it. But if, if I was at the club, that would have been my, part, my next step, yeah to secure the club. I mean, you know, if you're local and, and you believe in something, you know, I wanted to see what it was all about because I had been, you know, every time, I don't know how old you guys are, but on a Saturday, there used to be a pink paper that came out. With all the yeah, yeah. yeah, Jeff so remembers that. My dad used to get that and I'd look at it and I'd always look for Bournemouth's result, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And when I was at the ground, I, you know, I took trouble to read every message in the wall round the North Stand. You know, and it, when you read all those messages, you realise it's not just about the team that's out on the pitch today 
It's about the teams that have gone by, the people that have supported that aren't there anymore. Um, you know, and it's it's um, it's deep roots and it's becomes part of your life. Um, but you know, Max had to ask the taxi driver who Ted McDougal was. You know, that's how much he knew about the club. It was uh, no, it's just not for it's just not for me now. You said you went on holiday. You'd been on holidays with him before to mm. Finland. Do you, do you have no relationship with him now? Or do you see, are you still in touch, or how does it work? No, no relationship whatsoever. I'm banned from the club, um, right. and it's been made clear to me that I'm not wanted there. I'm not. I would be thrown out if I went there. Um, Is that because of uh, a particular thing that happened, or just because of the breakdown of of the uh, with you leaving? It was, it was, I actually fell out with um, my son-in-law at the time um, over issues. And I think they felt threatened if I was to stay there because lots of people, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything other than, uh, would tell me things about, you know, the supporters need this and want to do this. And, you know, I would listen and try to act on it. And I just, it just became very clicky. It, it went back to how it was when I first went to the club. But, you know, when I, I, for instance, during my tenor there, I offered and took, um, um, I invited the kiosk girls in who never actually got, got to saw the match because they were always in the dungeon, so to speak, under the north stand and wherever. So I invited them in and I could just feel the atmosphere of when I walked in the door with them. Um, I invited the guy who religiously cleaned up outside the front door every Sunday morning after the Saturday game, an old boy called Lynn. He used to bring me in chocolates if we get home game for luck. Um, not chocolates, um, toffees. And all he did was pull some of my fillings out. Um, <laughs> and I was eating them. But he was a lovely guy. And I used to help him on a Sunday morning, clearing, sweeping out the dog ends. And, yeah. You know, it was just, um, I tried to turn it into a different place and it didn't sit well and it just became clicky and they they didn't want me around and i think my falling out um was just an excuse to get rid of me and so looking from looking from the outside eddie when last season obviously it was a, a difficult year for the club getting relegated from the premier league did did you think that eddie's work ethic made it kind of inevitable that that if we got relegated that he would he would leave the club again I think he's very honourable, and I think he might have felt that he had failed. Um, but I don't, I don't know the truth behind the scenes. I should think there's more to it. And I mean, Eddie loves that club. He loved the club. Um, whether he was local, I don't know. But I know he grew up in Verwood. Mm. Um, yeah, he he was passionate about the club, and he would always try to do the right thing by the club. 
And were you... It's sad, very, very sad for me to see him leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very sad. sad for for all of us. And hypothetically, if, if you'd still been um, doing your, your job there, would you have given Jason Tyndall the, the role as his replacement? Um... Well, I think in the first instance, I wouldn't have let Eddie leave. I would have if given him some time to recuperate if he was exhausted. Um, I don't think for one thing he, minute he was bored with the, you know with the game. Um, but no, I just I think the club wouldn't get a better manager, so I wouldn't have let him leave. But as Jason's done quite a quite a good job since he's been in charge so it'd be wrong to say that he's not right for the job um, but long term it remains to be seen Are you still in touch with Eddie? Um, no, not really the, the the time from when I was banned at the club everybody at the club was banned from talking to me um, and uh, you know so I haven't spoke to Eddie since I left the club now. But I've never had any ill feelings towards him. We've never argued um, about anything other than, I think, you know, when I was in charge at the club. And that was, I think, the only time where I overstepped, I overstepped the mark and went in the changing rooms at Knox County and told him what I thought. And we were 2 nil down at half time. Or 3 but other than that, no, if I saw him in the street, I'd give him a wave and say hello. But and how about um, another big Sandbanks uh, person that's been in and out of um, buying properties, Harry Redknapp? Did you, did you ever have much to do with him? Do you have a glass yes. of Chablis at Rick Steinstein yes. together? Or? I speak to him quite often on the phone. Um, yeah, we good pals. We used to go out and have a drink with our wives and that. We haven't recently. Um because of what's going on and I've been ill and but um yeah he's given me a lot of support since I've left the club. He lovely guy promises a lot and delivers as much as it as he can. Uh, yeah no he's great. He's great. But, but Eddie, I mean you you were you were known as I think there's a nickname for you which was Marmite Eddie. Um do you, do you think that's a pretty accurate summation of of how people have dealt with you over the years or do you think I mean, here you are, you're talking to the fans. What would you like to say to all the fans who've known you or perhaps didn't know you? Um, well, if they watch your podcast, they'll get to know a bit more about me, wouldn't they? Yeah, true. It's true. I've, you know, told you the way that I feel about the club and, and the fans. And I'm still in touch with some of the fans. Um, you know, they couldn't get banned from speaking to me. Um, when I went in there, there was a, a silent majority and a noisy minority. And I had to take that noisy minority on. And I did, and I wasn't prepared not to. Um, I wasn't going to sit behind anybody and let somebody else, you know, take it on the chin. I, I was there and I was going to give a good fight as I could. Um mm. But I wouldn't change a day of the time that I was at the club. Um, no. do you, I mean, do you think? Every minute. You think if you 
You brought Eddie back to the club, um, had a relationship when he was there. You brought Max to the club. Do you think, in a way, sometimes you don't get the credit for what happened? Because it wouldn't have happened without you, would it? It would, if the right person came in that was local and felt for the club and loved it and had the tenacity that I have. Um, but, you know, who knows what would happen to the club if I didn't come in. You know, I couldn't say that I'd done anything special for the club other than gone there, enjoyed four years, um, felt very honoured to be there and done my best, really. Do you think um, do you think your time at Bournemouth contributed to the, the heart problems that you had and the operation and the surgery in 2018? <laughs> Um, certainly my um, what would I say my asset value went down quite a lot because of the time I spent at the club and I stopped actually building um, no I, did, I didn't find the club stressful I loved it I couldn't wait to get up in the morning I wouldn't have gone there at 6 o'clock in the morning most mornings if I didn't I just couldn't wait to do something new um you know it was just it just gets inside you and i just wanted to shock people by you know when when it was closed uh at, you know at the end of the season i wanted to make sure people come back and said cool look at that look at that you know i felt so passionate it was when we the lorry park was all stones and everything else, you know, I'm sat in the stand after cleaning and watching the cleaners clean all the seats and everything else and some guys out there doing 360s, you know, a couple of guys in cars doing 360s around the car park and the first thing I did, because all the dust was coming over the side where the stand wasn't built, is, is to go out and confront them, you know, on my own uh, with three or four guys there, you know, and I told them, you know, if they carried on, they'd have 10,000 people chasing them around, not picking me. Um, it just, no, it, I don't think it did at all. I, no. Are you still a fan? Do you still watch the games on telly? Yeah, yeah, too right. Yeah, yeah I, I watch it on my iPad where you guys are now. Yeah, right. all the time. Good stuff. Well, look, um, what's next for you, Eddie? What what uh, what are you looking forward to now? Well, seeing, seeing as I give you boys a little boost, so perhaps I could tell you about what we're doing here. Yeah, no, 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 no. tell us, tell us. Well, we've got fifteen thousand square foot of indoor space, um, which has got fantastic three G on it, um, and it's got all our contemporary state of the art products on it that are used regularly by professionals. Um, and if you look at our website, you'll see Messi using some of our products, Ronaldo. Um, and they're in quite a few clubs now. Um, and they're in centres around the world. We've used, they've been used over a million times. Um, so we're building a business with now probably two to three million pound turnover. We started from nothing. I started it with two or three university graduates who are football mad, 
Bournemouth fans. Um, and I'm enjoying looking after them, teaching them the ropes of work and giving them work ethic. We've spent a quarter of a million pounds fitting the place out. It's not only got football products, it's got boxing products, it's got sprint lanes um, and a, a running hill, a one in 30, 30 metre running hill. Um, it's it's just state of the art and we were due to open um, in February but I don't think that's going to be possible now um, but if anybody wants to google it it's ftylab.com um, and we're planning to open other centres around the country um, and we've got I think it's 22 ESA Zones, which is um, the company that actually manufacture the products around the world, which are indoor centres that have got more than four of our products. Um, and they're as popular as you can get. And we're selling them well and it'll be um, a worldwide product soon. It's And it's something which, if it's used with enthusiasm the right way um, it gives players the opportunity to train alone in match realistic situations um, and you get up to you can get up to 60 ball touches in a minute um, from different areas of around you um, and it's really worth googling eliteskillsarena.com and to see what it's all about. So you can see our centre, which is ftylab.com, and you can see the history of the product on eliteskillsarena.com. Brilliant. As soon as as soon as we're all allowed out, I'm sure we'll all be interested in checking it out. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't know about you, Neil. I, I touch a ball about 60 times a month, but um, not 60 times a minute, but I'll, uh, no, I'd, I'd definitely, definitely be interested. That's for sure. It's are you, are you still a, it's, the first to work, Eddie? Are you still the first in to work? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I'm so enthused. It, it's just really, it's just great. Yeah. Uh, Brilliant. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I'm really pleased to have you on. And, um, you know, I think we as fans, we do owe you a lot. And uh, it's 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 great to have this opportunity to hear your side of the story and to and to give you that credit that you deserve. Thanks very much. Thanks for for having us on the air. Yeah, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Gary Chapman, the bloke who stands in the back of the North Stand, shouting up the cherries. You're listening to Back of the Net. Wow. Well, there you go then. Former Cherries chairman Eddie Mitchell, there, Neil. How did you think that went? Well, I, I loved every minute of that. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um, clearly, one man's opinion. Um, I think it's worth pointing that out. We're, we're getting, you know, one-sided argument, but uh, just so many events that were so massive at the time, uh, and obviously, you know, regardless of. What, what your opinion is of, of Eddie Mitchell, he was pivotal when all those events happened. So just to hear his side, Jeff, was brilliant, wasn't it? 
It was, and and I I thought there were some really interesting things that he said. I mean, one of one of those. I mean, obviously, those are Eddie's opinions. They're they're not our own. It's it's mm. not the podcast views, but there there was some really interesting stuff, particularly about the dynamic between him and Jeff Mostyn. Mm. When Jeff Mostyn, according to Eddie, contacted him in the first place to bring him into the club, but mm. for then Eddie to use the word embarrassing about Jeff. I mean, one person's embarrassing. I mean, it's another person's brilliant or maverick, isn't it? You know, it, it yeah. can be taken either way. So. What was what was your take on that? Uh, I think that we've heard one side of the story, haven't we? I think they're two big personalities. Um, I can imagine both of them are used to in their careers being the sole um, uh, leader or boss in an environment. Having two bosses always very very difficult. Um, so you could imagine there would be personality clashes and. Um, uh, I'm sure you know one finds one embarrassing, the other probably finds the other embarrassing. Clearly, there was a bit of a, a you know a breakdown in relationship there. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so it, interesting to hear one point of view. And obviously, we talked about Eddie's issues with the media. Of course, the reason Eddie was in the media so much was because he did things like I mean, he was on the pitch, he was outside the ground, he swore on the radio, he was yeah. calling. You know, calling calling fans out and telling them to go and support Southampton. Yeah. You know, arguably, Eddie, you know, pretty embarrassing behaviour, really. Himself, yeah, yeah. And I think you know, if, if ever we're fortunate enough to get Jeff to come on uh, the podcast, I'm sure his view would be be of that. They were both massive, massive characters, um, and uh, both. You know, both have done things that I'm sure, as we all have, you'd look back and think, if I had my life over again, I might not have done that. Um, and uh, but nothing malicious, I don't think, from from either side. I was, I've always found both of them, whenever I've watched them, to be highly entertaining. I don't mind people coming on pitches of it. You know, and, and, uh, I, I just think football's an entertainment business. It's a working class sport. Um, it needs drama. Um, so you know, Jeff Moston's always been great on camera. Dancing in the changing room on promotion, firing champagne everywhere. Eddie Mitchell wore his heart on his sleeve. Uh, you know, both characters. I think we're lucky to have had them both. And another point that Eddie made was that Max was only interested in the playing side of the game. Which, well, if your goal is the Premier League, of course you would be. Mm. Um, perhaps you wouldn't necessarily be so concerned about the infrastructure, particularly if there was somebody like Eddie in the club who who looked after that. Um, mm. And and I thought it was a little harsh to to sort of call out Max for not knowing who Ted McDougall was because, I mean, you and I of that age where we actually do know who he is and we remember, but a lot of fans yeah. coming to the club wouldn't necessarily know that anyway, apart from the, the fact you've got a stand named after him. No, I think even if you'd grown up in Britain, uh, you might not know who Ted McDougall was. Um, and uh, the fact that Max grew up in Russia, that would be like expecting us to know who was centre for for CSKA Moscow in 1973, isn't it? We wouldn't have a clue. So, uh, no, I think, yeah, uh, I wouldn't expect Max to know who Ted McDougall was. I think the whole thing with the, is, was he only interested in the playing side, not the infrastructure side? That debate is really critical to the nub of AFC Bournemouth. And I think we'll discuss that as fans for years to come because, 
the, the two really strong arguments, and I can go either way on it, but I, and I have changed my mind several times. Um, do you, did, you, did we need to invest money in the infrastructure and keep the club going forever? Well, now that we're back in the championship, I wish we had. I wish we'd, I wish we'd done what Eddie Mitchell had said and given ourselves a training ground and a stadium because I think we'll look back on that as a golden opportunity missed. Um, but when we were in the Premier League, there was something really exciting about bringing Nathan Ake and Jefferson Lerma in and being able to match the likes of Liverpool, you know, on occasions. Uh, so would I have changed that? I don't, you know, so now I'm looking back with wonderful hindsight saying I wish we'd spent it on a stadium. At the time, I was saying let's let's keep the players going and let's stay here long enough to build a stadium out, out of the sale of those players. I don't think there's a... I don't know what you think, Jeff. I don't think there's a direct answer to that. Well, I think... Sometimes we get into this debate, and it's it's either is presented as either one or the other, and maybe there is a middle way where we can we can achieve both. But but you know we we spent a lot of money in the Premier League, and a lot of that money arguably was wasted money. You know, you look at some of the players we brought into the club who really did not perform and got shipped out, and we we made big losses on them. So I think if we're if we're better managed on that playing side, perhaps then. You know why can't we have it both? And I, I think you know sometimes we fall into a bit of a trap that it's either one or the other. You know, I, I think the problem with investing in the infrastructure, if you do take that perspective, is well, we don't want to slide down the leagues and go bankrupt again and have a thirty thousand seat stadium that's empty. Yeah, like, like Darlington. Exactly, or, yeah. or or you know Sunderland. Look at look at they've got fantastic facilities, but they're in League One. Yeah, you know. So um, so I think. It's a, it is an interesting debate. It will continue. Lots of different sides to it. I, I'm sure the current regime are aware of the discomfort from the fans, and they, they're also aware how important having a proper stadium and a, and a proper infrastructure is to attracting the right calibre of players. And you can't have one necessarily without the other. Mm-hmm. So it will continue to run and run. Um, yeah. Uh, there was another thing I wanted to pick up on. Eddie said it had become a bit cliquey at the club. I mean, obviously, he he was being, um, I don't know, frozen out, whatever. You know, he wasn't flavour of the month, that's for sure. But, I mean, cliquey, another word for that could be professional. Um, you know, after all, Eddie admitted there that he'd, he'd never read over a contract, which I thought was was uh, amusing. Don't know what you think about that, that comment. Uh, yeah, I think... Again, I think we, it's hard for us to say because we're fans. We sit on the outside. We do a podcast. We don't. We don't. We ne- will never ever know what goes on in in the echelons of power. Uh, I think most people I've ever known in my business life that have left organisations, perhaps not in the way that they want to, have talked about cliques because that that clique is just a coming together of the other people to decide that maybe that person's not right. Now, whether or not they were right, or whether or not. Eddie Mitchell's right. We'll never know that because we don't know what happened. But um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me when I hear people talking about cliques in any organisation, to be honest, because sometimes when you feel a little bit pushed out, you you do think the other side's a clique. Indeed you do. Um, And one final point that I thought was really interesting was Eddie's take on the the past season and what happened with Eddie's departure. Obviously, as a man who, who brought Eddie back to the club, uh, and I thought that was a fascinating part of the story, listening to yeah. all of that. But um, Eddie Mitchell was was pretty clear that that um, he would have tried everything to to retain Eddie, and um, 
yeah, I, I don't doubt that for a minute. I don't know what you thought about that part of the conversation. Yeah, it, it was very interesting because, of course, that's the other massive unknown factor. It's never really come out. Um, with, no, no one has ever spoken. Jason's never spoken about it. Eddie's never spoken about it. Eddie Howe's never spoken about it. The board have never spoken about that whole period when Eddie Howe, when Eddie Howe left. So Eddie Mitchell seemed to imply that he would have, had he been around, he'd have had the strength of relationship to talk him into staying. Um, you know, it would have been great if that had been the case. Uh, but we don't know. We don't know what happened. There was, there was a mystery week where all we know was we went into the week positive and Eddie, Eddie was talking and about next year. We came out of the week with a surprise announcement to the fans on the Saturday um, because it always looked like it would have happened at the start of the week was the obvious time, but the end of the season had, had minds been made up. All I hope is that one day we someone writes a book or we get to find out what happened in that, that middle week. But certainly Eddie Mitchell seemed to imply that he would have been able to... Potentially Eddie was there for the talking round. So what we don't know is whether or not how hard that happened to people try to talk him round or didn't they? I don't know. Well, I'm pretty convinced there were uh, an abundance of non-disclosure agreements covering what went on that week. And yeah. um, hopefully there's a time limit on them. They will expire. And we do get to read it in a book because I think that would be, you know, really interesting to see what did go on. It would be great. It would be great to know because it was such a golden era um, and it ended so suddenly. And I think as fans, we'd all, we'd all love to know. What, um, but like you say, it would probably be 20 years time in... Eddie Howe's autobiography once he's taken England to the World Cup final. Neil, thanks for that. And thanks for coming on. Really appreciate your company tonight. It was no, uh, a great Thank interview. You. Thank you. So brilliant to hear from Eddie Mitchell there. And at the end, you heard Jeff and Neil Dawson just weighing up the chat a little with a few minutes just going over what they'd heard. A really explosive interview in places and very interesting to see what Eddie says about certain members of staff. Wow, we would love to speak to Jeff Mostyn at some point. We're not really in the position to be able to get whoever we want, whenever we want. However, it'd certainly be good for him to put his story across to the fans. They would certainly love it. So very much appreciated. Thank you so much for listening. That was Eddie Mitchell. Stay tuned. There's more lockdown interviews on the way. Some audio highlights coming your way next will include John Bailey. Direct and to the point. Plus, well, we've got a goal-scoring hero, by the way, of Ted McDougall. Do not miss that. Those will be coming to your ears soon. Plus, one of the players of the last decade. Coming soon. Stay tuned to the lockdown interviews. We are a family club, but we believe in expressing our gratitude to everybody. And because we've been, well, I won't say, but in the past. Eddie, we, Eddie, we, Eddie, we Eddie, 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 get rid of him, get rid of him. I don't care who you are. You do not come on this show, which is listened to by fans of all ages, and swear not once, not twice, but three times.
Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.